warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. the Real Britannia podcast, the very British podcast about very British movies. It's about this point that I usually say with a hint of professionalism, Stephen, but <laughs> as we know, nothing can be further from the truth for this episode as we dive headfirst into unknown territory, mate. It's the murky world of having to record an episode again because we, no, no, more specifically, I lost the original recording. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, well, these things happen. You know, you did actually lose uh, the use of a laptop, which just completely composted on you. So mm. to be fair, you lost it via that rather than any other way. And, and it was great that we managed to recover everything else apart from this. I would yeah. like to agree with so, you. I don't think that's the truth because I recovered every other episode that was missing. I don't know where it went. <laughs> it's with the blue lamp. Uh, they're a happy couple. Yeah, um, you know, spending their, their elder years together. In this digital void that we know nothing about, you know. We keep promising that we're going to re-record the Blue Lamp episode, but it was about, I reckon it was about four years ago that we lost Yeah, it. well, it's going to be, I think, some kind of birthday episode or something <laughs> we're going to do, or maybe the last ever episode before we sign off. We, um, we promised to re In our elder it. years. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to be a chore today, having to review this one again. Uh, no. It's a cracker. We know it's, it's back to when the day were. Which is directed by it's Alberto Cavalcanti, isn't it? Because he's known as Cavalcanti yes. in, in in the credits. But it's Alberto, and he was he South American, Brazilian, I believe. As far as I recall, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I went out this week and I, I treated myself to the Blu-ray, so I watched it again last night. And well, I'm going to save my thoughts, obviously, for what we're going to talk about. But you you've rewatched it again recently, I take, even though we only watched it a couple I- of months ago. I did as well, yes. Uh, I still had the recording from Talking Pictures TV from when it was on last year. It's actually yeah. on again so in a I couple of weeks. That. Yeah, yeah, they're showing it again. It's quite a regular on Talking Pictures TV, this one. So we're going to urge anybody that hasn't seen it to try and watch it if they can, because it is. Well, it gets better on every watch. I mean, I, I was sort of like, oh, I only watched it a couple of months ago. Do I have to watch it again? Yeah, I do. And I'm so glad that I did. So, So we'll chat about that in a second. Let's take a little break. We're going to be back after this. It was Saturday morning when those army lorries came rumbling along the road from Upton. We'd have laughed if you told us we'd got a real live German right under our very noses. Funny sort of way to spell chocolate. Chocolade is the German for chocolate. 
If we're found out, we shall be attacked. And my orders are to hold this village. And to continue to hold it for 48 hours after invasion starts. You great bullying brute! You disgraced your uniform. Why, you're no better than a German, that's what you are. You're very good health. And down with Hitler. Silence! What is the meaning of this monstrous interruption? Hoffman! Hoffman, obey my orders and you will not be harmed. Any person who attempts to escape or communicate with the outside world will be shot. Is that clear? That's Went the Day Well, released in 1942, directed by Alberto Cavalcanti, as we mentioned earlier, and starring Leslie Banks, Valerie Taylor, young Harry Fowler's in this, Thora Heard, we've got to talk about Thora Heard, mm-hmm. magnificent Mervyn Johns, young Patricia Hayes, lots of famous faces. Stephen, this was your selection, mate, so as tradition dictates... It's your turn to give us the synopsis, please. Villages valiantly combat covert kraut commandos. So, okay, I was expecting something a bit more convoluted from you there, because yeah. <laughs> but that is very precise. It is very precise, and actually, for once, doesn't need as much translation by yourself of what uh, what the actual <laughs> plot is there, because it is about villagers who do valiantly combat some covert kraut commandos. Obviously, in uh, the speculative fiction, as it were, war propaganda, it's a rare war film that's actually set on the home front, put there really to instill some kind of oomph into people as far as, you know, that should the invasion come, which was expected at the time of recording, but but by the time it was released, that threat was off the table, really, uh, or at least was less present. Yes. But it just showed, really, the different sections of, of community and ordinary people who would be those that you least suspect of heroics, you know, <laughs> stepping up to the plate and doing their bit. And yeah. um, we'll get into uh, how they do that in um, good time. In full gory detail, because that is what a lot of people remember from this movie. It is particularly violent for the time, for 1942. Yeah. It was notable for some of the more shocking sort of scenes and incidents that happen throughout the film. Just thinking about this last night while I was watching it, a very good companion piece to the first movie we recorded on the show, which was the eagle has landed which is a similar premise but doesn't feature the villagers fighting back so much in this case because it's it's literally the army that fights the the invaders in that movie isn't it yeah and if you read up about the two films you Mm. certainly there is a lot of references to the eagle has landed being influenced by this yeah uh, as a, a starting point so It is a full circle thing, really, at that point. Not that we're going to stop recording, but, yeah, the premise there of an invading force and the civilians having to deal with this covert force that's coming 
that you know has been done elsewhere as well but yeah. certainly it wasn't done before this not unless you've got some older films about the, the Trojan horse <laughs> uh, yeah we'll be clutching at straws there mate to try and find one yeah. before I think could even be compared favourably to that famous Dad's Army episode with uh, Philip Maddock you know? well the Dad's Army film and, and the, uh, the the episode this has parallels and I can't say that they haven't been influenced as well <laughs> by it. Um, certainly, you know, you, you've got the, the church and the village hall in, in that sense being utilised. and um So there, there are, again, parallels there in that way that the, the home guard being the ones that are doing the, the fighting towards the end. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, there, again, there are parallels. It's like that's the comedy version of this. Not that there isn't. There's a few bits of kind of humour in this, but yeah. essentially it is a, a war film. It is, and as you say, it's, it's a, a war film on the home front that's not in London, you know, it's not set during the Blitz or it's not about Spitfire pilots, you know, on the south coast. It is a typical English village that is invaded by a German task force, basically. Yeah. Um, a very famous village. It's Turville, which we've seen many times. Turville Village. You you know Turville, don't you, mate? That it's appeared in, mm. you know, it's, it's the village in the Vicar of Dibley, which is probably its most famous appearance. It was the village in Goodbye, Mr. Tom. And I'm just trying to think what else I read. Well, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang it appears there. I think the windmill is the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang reference calendar girls things like that so we're quite familiar with this village over the years we've seen it but this is way back in 1942 before it becomes a little bit more modernized with tarmac roads and stuff like that because you recognize the church immediately because the church is pretty much the focus of the village in this yeah and that's absolutely you know in the credits of vicar dibley and comes up there and elsewhere where it's been utilised it, it just obviously is a photogenic village yeah um, but it starts and ends at the, at the churchyard doesn't it in the graveyard in the church yeah. and it's quite a famous monologue or an introductory speech that Mervyn John makes because he, he breaks the fourth wall he talks to the camera yes. and it's you know hello oh, oh I see you've come here to you know, you've heard about the famous battle and all this. So you've got to remember, this was filmed in 1942, but it's told in flashback. Mervyn Johns is, is talking to us post-war, and he says this is what happened back in 1942. And you're quite right in saying that the threat of invasion was sort of overhanging at the time, because, as you said, at the time of release, it was just sort of dissipating, because if you know your war history, I think the front had moved to the Russian side, hadn't it? I think so Hitler's forces were sort of concentrating more towards that side rather than focusing on crossing the channel but the threat was very real for quite a while wasn't it yeah and it was more that they'd become almost entrenched or a stalemate of sort of a, a softer war for want of a better phrase on the western front because yeah. of the eastern front being so absolutely violent and barbaric but yeah whereas it was basically it settled up as being that it was peering at each other across the english channel and yes, some covert agents perhaps being sent, but it wasn't a full-scale invasion. No. So let's go straight into it. Mervyn John introduces the whole thing. He says, this is what happened several years ago. Let me tell you the full story. And this is the only part of England that they got. Which is basically the graves where they're buried. The so graves, we know yeah. it's going to happen. You know, we, we know the ending's going to be favourable to the British. So it starts off with this group of, so well, apparently British soldiers arriving. Uh, saying they're on some form of exercise in the village and they need to be billeted about 60 beds. And 
it all seems quite normal. You know, it's that typical country village you see Thora Heard delivering the milk, you know, dressed in, I think it's the Women's Land Army uniform I think she's wearing. Her best friend is due to get married the next day to... Now, what was the guy? Was he the... Wasn't the baker, was he? Who was she married? Oh, she was marrying the sailor, wasn't she? Sailor, yeah. Who proves vital in, in what, you know, carries on in the next hour or so. It's bank holiday weekend. It's Whitsun weekend, we find out as well. Yeah. And it's just an everyday normal sort of village goings on that's disrupted by the arrival of this platoon or this group of soldiers. And you get the sense that the villagers sort of welcome the idea of a little bit of excitement in their lives because nothing really seems to happen here, does it? Yeah, they're welcoming them with open arms and the whole scramble for bulletin and some more welcoming that than others. Some yeah. of them are incredibly excited, wanting to take more than they actually should and... Certainly the, there's the interest from the, the adults and even one of the children who ends up getting more than a click round the ear for looking into what the soldiers are bringing yeah. into the, the village. But yeah, it's just their tranquil, mundane village life is disrupted and it's a bit of excitement for them um, you know, to be involved in this exercise yeah. that the army's doing. It's not the first time something like this has happened, though, when you look at it, because a lot of the children in the village are actually evacuees as well. So then, you know, <laughs> there's Harry Fowler, the little Cockney kid, who's, who, yeah. who's, who plays, again, a vital role within this movie. And it doesn't take long to actually get to the, you know, the heart of the plot here, because we soon find out that there's a sleeper agent, as I think they'd call it, wouldn't they, in um, Leslie Banks, who plays Oliver Wilsford. Yes. He turns out to actually have been planted in the village waiting for this to happen. Yeah, described uh, on the Wikipedia yeah. entry as the treacherous squire. A treacherous squire, is that what he... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leslie Banks, quite famous. Um, if you like your classics or universal horrors, he was in, I think it was The Most Dangerous Game, because he had this quite unique look about him. If you look at the left side of his face, there's some damage there from when he served in World War One. So he's got some quite severe scarring and a, and a drooping eye. And he played the chorus in Henry V, the uh, Laurence Olivier version. And he apparently, when he was on stage, he used the two sides of his face, a bit like Two-Face in Batman, almost, in monologues that he would do if he was playing a happy character. He'd turn to the audience and show the unscarred side of his face. But then if he was doing something sad or malevolent, he'd show the scarred side of his face. Mm. He, he made, you know, yeah, yeah. He, he took advantage of quite an unfortunate accident that happened to him like 30 years earlier. Very famous guy. You know, we see him quite often. He was in a couple of Hitchcocks as well. I think he was in... Um, he was... Man who knew yeah, too much, wasn't he? The original yeah. man who knew too much, that was it. So we're going to see some famous faces cropping up. So Some famous two-faces. Some famous two-faces, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason they're there is that the German invasion is planned for the Monday or the Tuesday over this bank holiday weekend. And they've been set up to, is it disrupt a communications device when the invasion starts? And they're sort of questioning, well, why do you need so many soldiers just to disrupt a communications device. Well, it's not necessarily that. It's we've got to defend it once the invasion starts. So Yes, it's, quite... it's a bridgehead, isn't it? In yeah. That way. yeah. And we soon find out that the majority of these Germans speak very good English, but there are a few that speak very, very little at all, so they have to be kept in the background. Well, it's the radio specialist who they have to have, mm. who's the one that doesn't speak any English. The rest of them 
quite well. Quite actually. passable, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they make uh, reference to the sergeant being the best one to communicate because he's he can pass as English, can't he, almost? Yeah, the accidental contact with the radio operator, I think, twice, mm. just does plant a seed of, of doubt or at least um, you know, leads people to suspect. He's the points. cause of their downfall, virtually, yeah, isn't it? It, it yeah. is, yeah. But, yeah, the, the fact is that they've got somebody on the inside, as it were, who is playing the part of he's going to continue to play the part of, of being one of the villagers so he can then still inform whether they're trying to have any escape plans or attack on the soldiers because, you know, he can feed that out if he, if they still think that he's one of them and, and trust him. It'll work to their advantage, of course, yeah. Mm. The part concerning the radio operator, as you mentioned, is vital to the success of the mission and he, he is almost the cause of their downfall. And this bit really highlights how good this script is because you're thinking, how are the villagers going to get out of this? How are they going to become aware that this is not what it appears to be? And it's done very subtly in certain little clues, as you say. It raises elements of doubt in the mind of Valerie Taylor, who plays Nora, because she finds the bar of German chocolate. Or Harry Fowler finds the bar of German chocolate and shows it to her. It also is the discovery that the telegram which had got mislaid and the Germans had been using for <laughs> scoring on yeah. their, their card game because of, um, on the continent and particularly Germany and Eastern Europe, they use a different way of doing particularly sevens and fives. Where sevens are new. There's a cross across the... And not so much now, I don't think, with the fives and things, mm. but certainly when it was still older style, which we're familiar with because you see, you know, a lot of the stuff that was signage and stuff to do with the Nazis, mm. even at that stage, it was still what's called black letter, yeah. uh, which is something that was phased out when we left the medieval times in, in this country. So she picks up on that and that there's a continental edge to that as well. And then it's tried to be explained away as, oh, well, maybe the Hungarian or, or Polish Poles, or uh, yeah. and so there's sort of the hints there, and then a brush away by somebody else. As far as they're going, with the suspicion is that there might be uh, an infiltrator within the regiment, and that they might have to tell the senior officers, not realizing that it is at that point all of them. It's every single one of them, not just a, a one-off, yeah, infiltrator. And when their suspicions are raised, and the Germans then become aware that they're aware. They activate what they call sort of plan B or the second plan, which is to get all the villagers together into the village church, don't they? Because it's all disrupted. Well, a lot of them are already there at the church anyway for the Sunday service. Or is it the Uh, wedding? um, Might be the wedding between the sailor. Maybe the wedding, yeah. So they're already there in the church at the majority of, of the village. You know, you've got to question, you know. Since the village is so small, what the the people who weren't in the village were able to work there, and obviously, you know, done something wrong to not get invited. <laughs> Although there are there are two people who, when they're getting rounded up to be taken to the church, they object straight away by saying that they don't go to church because I think say so that they're Methodists or the something, yeah, 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 some some other denomination that which therefore means that they don't go to the church, and basically, and they're corrected that they will be in this occasion. So uh, well, one of them that, objects know, she can't go because she's just put the roast in the oven as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> so the baby British. needs. You know, <laughs> yeah, so they, you know, they get rounded up, and there are a few outliers of people who aren't part of it. There's the there's a postman, there's the delivery boy on his bike, there's the poacher 
in the in the woods. Yes. Uh, there's a few like that that aren't involved that don't get rounded up straight away, but they've got already got people at the big house, as it were, to look after those people and yeah. things. So the majority are rounded up, and the, yes, the vicar is quite outraged that the army should just march into the church, not actually cutting on to what was going on immediately. That's right, and it's at the church that we witness the first of these sort of notorious, brutal scenes that this film is quite famous for, that the vicar makes a run for the bell tower and starts ringing the bell, because that's, it's, it's true, isn't it? The bells were silenced, weren't they, during the war, I'm pretty sure, and they were only to be used as like a warning yes. thing. Yeah, so he rings so, the bell, yeah, the first time. Yeah, we, and, and the home guard who are on manoeuvres, one of them hears the bell ring twice, mm. tries to report that to others and basically gets put down as imagining it. Yeah, and, and the uh, vicar gets killed in, in the process, yeah. which is the first sort of evidence of these guys are not taking any prisoners. You know, we are serious about this. Yes. And you mentioned there all these outlying characters that are sort of permitted to go about their everyday business, the delivery boy in particular, so that suspicions aren't raised. So they yes. let him go around. And we see some ingenious sort of methods. Ways of trying of try to get messages yeah, out, yeah. Writing messages on eggs. But then... Yes. In in a brilliant scene following that, we see he's knocked off his bike by Mrs. Fraser's cousin. And he ends up in a ditch full of water. She runs over the eggs and you think... Oh God! You know, you sort of edge of the seat stuff. It's like, how are they going to, you know, get out of this now? That was their only sort of way of doing this. And, become... and we have that each little attempt. You think, oh, they're going to get the word out that way, and then it, and then there's some reason why it fails, and then there's another one. You go, oh, that's going to do it. No, it doesn't. And there's a couple of false starts on that. Yeah, which is quite good because they are ingenious, but still plausible. Well, the thing is, the note as well that was um, in Cousin Maud's pocket, because she's in the car driving away, and she's also had a note slipped in her pocket as well by her cousin. Yeah. The dog chews it up. It's a classic case of the dog at my homework. You know, the... the clever thing with that one is, and it didn't occur to me until I watched it again yeah. last night, is the woman knew whose house it is mm. um, and whose cousin it is visiting. Yeah. She actually involves misdirection. And I didn't cut on to this before, that the German is so concentrating on this book, possibly by the way that the message is being transferred, and he offers to carry it to the car and yes. put it in the back of the car. And then when the car drives off, it turns out he hasn't put it in the back of the car. He was hiding it behind his back. Mm. And he thinks that, he, you know, as he yeah, says, you can't be too careful. He thinks he's foiled what it is, and she knows that there is a chance still because that wasn't where the message the um, laid. Unfortunately, as you say, it, it still doesn't get through. But it is these ingenious ways of, of managing to get, and there's various different uh, escape attempts or attempts to get you know somebody outside of the lines to carry a message to the outside world. And unfortunately, yeah. most of them, again, falter. Well, one of the most shocking sort of ways of trying to get a message out from the village involves the postmistress herself, Mrs. Collins, who's got this sort of love, well, not a love-hate relationship, she's got this relationship with the, the switchboard operators that they don't really like her because she can be a bit pushy and it ends up yeah. in her downfall, so to speak, because she's there with a German soldier and he's having his breakfast there or whatever and he's struggling to get the pepper onto his breakfast. So she's like, okay, let me uh, deal with that for you. And as she takes the top off the pepper pot, throws it in his face while he's distracted, this is a very famous scene that comes up you know if, if everybody talks about this film this is the scene they mention she picks up the little wood chopper an axe yeah and although the violence is sort of off camera you do see her raise it up above her head and bring it down and, and she's cleverly when she's setting down the tea things or the breakfast mm. sausages i think it is i know you germans like your sausages <laughs> uh which made me laugh uh but <laughs> 
she subtly moves his gun out of immediate mm. reach, which is why when she does go to attack him, it, the scene then it shows of him dead mm. is that just out of his fingertip reach was his gun. So she you know, planned the whole thing. It wasn't quite as opportune as, as it may come across. But yeah. the angle that you've got that shot with sort of looking up at her is almost you, you from his view. Yes. Um, it's very graphic, and as you say, for the time, quite controversial. That, yeah, that, that's mm. quite controversial, and obviously, with it being about the war and the the enemy, and trying to instill this that you have to take extreme action, perhaps um, no matter who you are. That is the start of it. That everybody doing their bit. She's doing her bit, but unfortunately, she doesn't manage to get a response in in time before one of the um, other soldiers comes along. Yeah. Which is, uh, this uh, this is what I said about great script writing because, as you said, some of these sequences are so believable that they could have happened. I mean, when she is ignored by the switchboard operator, that seed has been put in the viewer's mind because we've seen the scene earlier where they're moaning yes. about her. And then the bit where the dog eats the piece of paper was how's that got out of her pocket? Well, she's used the piece of paper to prop to up the, the window. loose window in the car and it's blown back into the back seat to where the dog can chew on it. You know, it's all been set up in these little tiny sequences that do make it believable. The, I mean, even the eggs, writing on the eggs, it's like, how's this going to be foiled? Well, you know, you see her in the car being distracted, singing away. And, she, you know, she veers off the road, knocks the poor kid off the bike into the puddle, the eggs. The home guard eventually get alerted. They happen upon the German soldiers in, in British uniforms still coming down the road yeah. and that's when they basically get ambushed. That's as the cousin Maud is uh, on her way to the big house uh, for her visit and by the time she's arrived they've cleared away the bodies just in time that they basically pretend they are on, you know, doing an exercise at the, and they you know, check for her identity card and etc. So when she does reach the big house, which and seeing the German officer there, you know, she makes reference to, oh, I hope your side wins, which, you know, suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly presents a bit of a dilemma for him. He doesn't know, what do you know? But yes, you know, there's a culmination of various bits of very good writing mm. with regards to how it all fits together with there being some things that are put there as a bit of a seed before it actually becomes something in the plot a couple yeah. of scenes later. That's it. just shows that despite um, what people might say, Graham Greene wasn't that bad at writing stuff, really. <laughs> um, it was a short story, wasn't it? I think this was based on... It wasn't like a novel yeah. or anything. It was a short story. And it's I great. So, yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely fantastic story. And like you said, it's influenced so many things after this. And we're building up and building up with these little pockets of resistance to a massive battle at the end which is worthy of any world war ii epic movie i think um, yeah I, I mean as you say there's a couple of key scenes in it there's the the one that you've got there with the postmistress who is burying the hatchet Exactly. Um, yeah. uh, and the the scene where the, the the treacherous squire literally stabs one of the villagers in the back. Yes. During an escape attempt, offers to go with them, and then actually scuppers the plan by quite early on just stabbing them in the back. And then you know the other iconic scene for for us is Thor heard taking pot shots through a window <laughs> at Germans, but. Yeah, there's a, the the way it actually all builds and culminates is very well done. Yeah. Um, 
and you know we've got the various little vignettes fitting together very expertly and this is why you, you start spotting things that you haven't seen in the previous viewing which is what we said earlier on mm, you spotted a lot this time round. i think you've got a lot more out of this viewing than you ever have before by the sound oh yeah i think you know um there's things that i I spotted for this record that for the last record i I didn't um maybe even say about or or consciously notice yeah it it just gets better and better on every viewing that's my best viewing of it last night and i'd seen it yeah which is not an encouragement for you to lose episodes in future (laughs) we should um... do this more often (laughs) (laughs) well I would say we won't spoil the ending, but we pretty much know how it ends because Mervyn Johns has told us. Yeah, he spoils it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not us, it's him. Um, And it's quite an abrupt ending because we we don't get no sort of like final end to the battle. We just know that they're going to win because the British army have turned up as well as the Home Guard and the villainous squire has been killed by Nora at one point because he's trying to take down the barricade from the French windows. And this is it. She's quite a timid character and had been raised her concerns earlier on and basically been told she's stupid and, and mm. should keep it to herself and that she's wrong and because of that being done twice with her I think that she's been basically pushed down on that when she does realise that she is right she doesn't then tell anybody yeah she very calmly goes and and does and does her bit Mm. of knocking the squire off Mm. she obviously feels that she'd mentioned it to one of the others that was there that say that she was wrong and that would not resolve the situation so she has to take it on herself and that's quite dramatic that somebody who is portrayed as being quite a timid gentle character has to go and take that action as far as doing their bit Uh, again it's just Um, one of those scenes that were shockingly violent at the time because it is such a changing character for her and we must mention before we wind up sort of like the plot of this movie there is a fantastic scene featuring mrs fraser the lady of the manor protecting the children yeah um where they're hiding behind an upturned bed and a hand grenade comes in through the window which she manages to sort of scrabble and grab hold of but she can't actually get to the window to throw it out so she runs out of the room with it and, and it closes the door closes almost the door. yeah and again off camera we don't actually see it but we see the explosion and because the, the door room, isn't quite closed mm. so there's the the ricochet of that of the door then along with the bang and some smoke you see the door sort of open to an extent again yeah. because of that blast and yeah that again as you said it stuff that is dramatic and quite violent but is done off screen but you fully feel that what the momentousness for want of a better word mm. is of that action being taken by an everyday person for you know that's not a somebody who's trained to go and throw themselves on a hand grenade for their exactly. squad mates this is some. This is a woman who who's just instinctually just got it's it's me or the kids and and she yeah and she runs out the door with it and bang it's yes. this whole movie for anybody expecting sort of like a Miss Marple type gentle sort of like wartime drama this is so much more as I say it's it's worthy of any sort of World War Two battle movie towards the end of the fighting scenes it's absolutely incredible um we've covered most of the plot there mate I think we ought to take five minutes to go up to our our own village hall which is the yes. village hall of fame so if you can grab your keys mate and we'll just make sure there's no germans lurking in there
Okay, Village Hall of Fame. Um, quite a big cast this week. Yes, and, and obviously anybody trying to sneak out of our Village Hall uh, will get probably a dagger. But it's people going in that we're talking about. In, so yeah. as far as the people who've appeared in this, there are actually quite a few people that we have to talk about and yeah. obviously try to be fairly brief about it. Uh, it's worth mentioning, though, that we do have this as the first appearance of Tommy Trinder, who is a name that we recognise. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and he's only in it via the radio broadcast oh. is, is, is so it's a bit of a trick one really and just as an aside we have somebody called Christopher Lee making an appearance but it's not that one right it's somebody okay. else called Christopher Lee but people making their second appearance yep. there's seven of them Okay. So I shall run through these uh, quite quickly. Mm-hmm. There's Irene Arnold, who has been Violent Playground. Alberto Cavalcanti, who was Dead of Night. Yep. Uh, he did one of the segments there. Muriel George, Last Holiday. Uh, Graham Green, he's previously uh, had rating on Third Man. Ellis Irving, Pool of London. Norman Pierce, in which we serve. Basil Sidney, The Dam Busters. Mavis Villiers, Pool of London. And Josie Welford, in which we serve. Can I stop so, um, you there very quickly before mm. I forget? You mentioned Dead of Night, Alberto Cavalcanti, was also filmed in Turville. <laughs> <laughs> just remembered. Carry on, sir. No, none of the carry ons. It was just <laughs> Dead of Night. Well, well, it wasn't just Dead of Night. There was obviously plenty of other things. Uh, carry ons is probably one of the few things that haven't been done there. I bet um, you find it might have done I bet, I bet we find <laughs> carry on camping was done in one of the fields, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there are five people who are actually getting their entry into the five. Village Hall of Fame, okay. which is quite nice for them. Yeah. So, they'll get a, a, a cup of tea and cream bun. So, Frank Lawton, who is Night to Remember and Gideon's Day. Okay, yep. Gerard Hines, who was Guns of Navarone and Cruel Sea. So, I imagine he's playing in one of the Germans. I was going to say, didn't he play a German <laughs> in every single one of those movies? Yeah, absolutely. He's, yeah. he's Schmidt in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thora Heard uh, oh, was wow. uh, One Good Turn, she was in, and Quatermass. Of course, yes. She's that famous drunk in Quatermass. Yes, um, absolutely, yeah. Johnny Schofield, in which we serve, and Wicked Lady. Okay. And Robert Brooks Turner was in Seven Days to Noon and The Dam Busters. Five. That's that's a good one because some weeks yeah. can be a bit sparse, but this week, five new inductees into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it is that peaks and troughs. So we have two people making their fourth appearance. Okay. Mervyn Johns. I knew he'd be up there because yeah. I, I, I was yeah. pretty sure he'd been inducted already. Yep. So, yes, uh, Scrooge, The Rebel and Dead of Night. Yeah. And John Slater, who he was the, the one that was the, was the soldier sergeant, that was best, best, at, best yeah. at talking English. Yeah. yeah. He was in Passport to Pimlico, Always Rains on a Sunday and Violent Playgrounds. Of course he was, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I did recognise him, but I couldn't picture what the movies were. Yeah. So, yes, and then the, one person making the fifth appearance. All right, okay. Which is Grace Arnold. Grace Arnold. She was Mrs. Owen. Okay, what was she yeah. in previously? Passport to Pimlico, Always Rains on a Sunday, Violent Playground and Sapphire. <laughs> Five cracking movies there, absolutely. That's a good CV. <laughs> yeah, quite a good it? career. That's a yeah. good CV. Okay. So, have we got uh, any more and five? we've got somebody making their 11th. Is it appearance. a bit part player or is it one of the major ones? It's a name you will recognise, and that's because it's not one of the actors in it. This is one of the exceptions we make when we refer to people who are off screen. Okay. Um, it's Michael Balkan. Excellent, of course. 
course. Uh, 39 Stats, Passport for Pimlico, Old Pins on a Sunday, Scott of the Antarctic, Pool of London, Lavender Hill Mob, Dunkirk, Whiskey Galore, Dead of Night and Cool Sea. <laughs> wow, I did spot actually talking to Backroom Boys on the opening credits, Douglas Slocum was listed as reporter cameraman. Oh, right. Douglas Slocum had a massive career right up to sort of, I think it was Blade Runner or the Indiana Jones movies or something, you know. Famous, famous sort of like camera operator and cinematographer. Yeah, I mean, Douglas Slocum has already made his third appearance to go. get into the Village mm. Hall of Fame. He managed to do that with, uh, that was with, oh no, actually, because of the order of things, uh, that was robbery. He was, uh, so. Uh. This, this would be his third rather than okay. uh, and then will be his fourth. So yes, that's a good spot there. That uh, mm. Slocum, this is actually the one where he makes his debut oh. in the Hall of Fame and gets his cup of tea and Excellent. Uh, he came up as D. Slocum, reporter cameraman. And I'm thinking, right, well, that's got to be Douglas Slocum. I had no idea what reporter cameraman was, but I thought I'd mention him. And there's somebody else, and I don't know if she's appeared before. I think she may have done. The baby is Jeanette Scott. Jeanette Scott, who oh, went right. on to Day of the Triffids and amongst other things. And he's also the real-life daughter of Thora Heard. She's the child, the baby. Yes, I recognise it, it being um, Thora Heard's daughter. Mm. But, I don't know no, if we've I, seen her I, before, I, have we, Jeanette Scott? I thought I we might have done. I think we have. I think she's one of these people who obviously will come up in things in future because of the fact that she did appear in quite a few things, but I'm not aware that there's anything no. we've done previously. I'm just um, looking at Because we, we haven't done Last of the Sun, Why in the Movie. Um... <laughs> Uh, Magic Box. Point. Magic Box will do eventually. She's in there. Double Bunk, I think, we'll probably do with Sid James at some point. Happy is the bride. We'll do School of Scoundrels at some point, definitely. Yeah, um, um, Beauty Jungle was a good movie, actually, if you want to do that. So, yeah, so it's probably her first appearance by the look of it. Oh, yeah. But so we'll see her. She'll appear again. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, there we go. So we're even grabbing the child actors in. Harry Fowler. Hasn't Harry Fowler appeared before? Not mentioned Harry Fowler. Harry Fowler, who plays the Cockney Kid in this, had a very long career because he started off as a child actor and he did a lot of TV stuff in the 70s as well. Pickwick Papers, I think it was a Dickens, wasn't it, he was in. Hue and Cry. I Was Monty's Double, we haven't done. No, we haven't. This is the first for Harry Fowler. He was in a film called A Day to Remember, not A Night to Remember. I Had Long Parade is in. That's probably where I'm getting confused we both watched that recently, haven't we, I think? Yeah, we have. I mean, I watched uh, something the other night on Talking Pictures TV. Mm. It was actually the TV series that was spun out of Gideon's Day. Yes. Uh, and it was, it was in that episode. Oh. So... We see him quite frequently um, yeah. in things, but uh, he's not actually been in anything um, that we've done previously on this, but no. that will change, as you say. There's another one. There's quite a few. Another one we've watched recently but haven't reviewed. The pair of us seem to have watched it about the same time. It was Ladies Who Do. He was in that as well with oh, um, yeah. Peggy yeah. Mount. Anyway, brilliant. So we've got five new inductees this week. Yeah. Getting a bit full in there, once you say we'll have to get the extension built at some point. Um, the, put a mezzanine in. <laughs> in the village hall of fame, yeah. Make room in the bell tower, move that vicar out of the way. Right. Uh Yeah, well, we've just been shown a way of uh of removing a vicar from the premises. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Final thoughts, mate. I mean, for me, third, fourth, fifth time, I can't remember, but it's the second time in quick succession within two months. And I honestly didn't think that I was going to enjoy it this time around as much as I did. And similar to you, spot things that I hadn't seen previously. And and now watching it this, this further time, 
this has really elevated. This has cemented itself as a five-star movie for me now. Yeah, I think I've come to a greater appreciation of watching it so soon after the last time. As you say, things that I spotted that I didn't quite before. Although maybe it was that I did see them, but I just didn't quite register with how it worked, you know, or how what impact it had mm. uh, upon either the story or, more appropriately, how it worked with regards to making a, a, a better film with how finely crafted it was. That landed a bit more with me this time round, and certainly it is a very well crafted film. It's you know well written in the first place, Graham Greene, but also shows that there's various bits in it where the way in which they've taken the camera angles have helped. The way in which it's obviously there's performances throughout it. I'm trying to think that there's, whether there's any performances that are any substandard, and I don't think there are. I think all of those are fine performances yeah. that really do encapsulate the characters incredibly well. So all the way through, it's quite an iconic film certainly for people to go and have a look at but I think beyond that is you know some iconic films you see and you think well I've seen it now I don't need to watch it again whereas this I've got no problem with watching it again in the future at some point when I've maybe had a bit more time between to appreciate it again because it is an incredibly good film yeah it was described recently because it got a restoration recently and the BFI re-screened it and we got the new Blu-ray come out one of the critics described it as undeservedly forgotten uh, mm. But since then, I think there's a new audience out there, plus the screenings that Talking Pictures TV give this quite regularly. It's become a bit of a, like we say, a forgotten classic, and it was voted one of the top 100 British war movies by Sight and Sound or Channel 4. You know, it's in, it's in a couple of lists now, and... I think as the years go on and people go back and discover this, it's going to be up there as one of their favourite war movies. And as I say, you know, the actual fighting sequences at the end, it is just like a full-blown war film, but it's, it's Thor Erd, Nazi Slayer, basically, you know. It's incredible. Yeah, and that's done with, I think, a certain amount of realism as well, yeah. which is quite useful. I mean, although there's a little bit of style put into it to make it maybe a bit more palatable, mm. in a sense. I mean, when Father Heard is shooting out the window and it's almost like shooting ducks at the fair yes. because the, the the Germans are going behind bushes, coming out of bushes, going behind bushes, and it's it's treated that way and they're talking about keeping count. That's a way of, of putting levity into it, either for the characters or for the viewer. But it is actually still quite graphic. It is put in this frame that there's quite tough decisions to be made for people in this kind of situation and encouraging that mindset in people via this propaganda is really is what's going on. But fortunately, we've got a situation where it's a propaganda a film essentially but it's done in a way that is thoroughly engaging and entertaining rather than it being forced doesn't feel at all forced no not at all exactly yeah it works on several levels this film mm. and would actively encourage anybody to seek it out yeah me okay. too right well due to the erratic nature of the recording <laughs> of this uh, or the re-recording of this episode fortune has smiled on us that we've already recorded our next episode <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a short break and come back with what we're watching next time because we know exactly what it is and what we've said Stephen has just pointed out in the break there to me that not only have we recorded the next episode, I think we've actually recorded the next six. Uh, 
Yeah. But as we're sharing editing duties now, we're going to make short work of these, aren't we, mate? And these are going to get rattled out pretty quickly now, we think. This is it. We plan to uh, to get them out quicker than you can listen to them. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, that, that won't happen. You never uh, know. But certainly we um, have recorded the next couple of episodes, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, and they just need finding and, and editing. But um, if they've been lost, we'll have to recut. But yes, we, we, we know what we're doing for the next one. And as you uh, correctly said, we know what we said uh, as well and about the I, film. From what I remember, it was a really enjoyable episode because we're joined by a guest. It's our dear yes. friend, Anthony, from the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast. And it was his choice for the day. And it's back to 1988. And, and it's a bit of a legend in sort of the, the realm of British cinema with healing comedies and such. It's a very late entry for Charles Crichton. And we're going to be talking about A Fish Called Wanda. Um, I just remember yeah. us having a great time chatting about that, mate. Yeah, which we usually do with mm-hmm. Anthony. So, yeah. in fact, we always do with Anthony. Cool. And he brings a lot to the table. And obviously, there's a lot to be saying about that film. It is... To some extent, it becomes in a bit more of a British international because of the stars that are in it. But yeah, on the other side, it, it's very British in, very in many British, ways. Very British, yes, because the Britishness of it is lampooned by the American stars. You know, it is highlighted quite significantly. Some of the eccentricities. Yes, yes absolutely. Painfully British when you look at John Cleese's character. I think we said. Yes. Right. Okay, so that's next time. It's going to be a fish called Wonder with Anthony in about a week or so. It's time hopefully this has not disappeared into the ether i'm gonna finish recording this and send you a copy over mate to keep in a vault somewhere just in case (laughs) hopefully this is the last time it will happen well we've got a lot of people in a village hall somewhere that can be custodians and make sure it's kept safe absolutely that's it from us for this week thanks very much cheers steve of being there mate i'll see you soon take care again Again. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>